the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It never occurred to me to be anything else. Mostly it had to do with an emotional reaction to not wanting anyone to get left behind or left out. And David Yu was roundly ostracized because people thought it was a performance art project. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. My change of heart had a lot more to do with suddenly realizing that I was supposed to add cis in front of my identifier. Hi, welcome back to the 180 Cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast where we explore the brains of people who have changed their minds, and I'm so glad to have you with me today. You have an abundance of choices in the podcast world, and you have chosen to stick around with me, and I'm so grateful for that. We have a very interesting um, story to explore today. I'm really excited to have our guests share that with you. Last spring, we talked to a couple different people who left the Democrat Party. We talked to Brandon Strzok, who was the founder of the Walk Away Movement, and we talked to Albert Guillory, who was a longtime member of the Democrat Party in the South and finally decided to call it quits and become a Republican for good. And then we've also heard on this podcast from two other people who left sort of Republican GOP values behind to become libertarians. So, as you can tell, we are interested on this podcast with people changing not just their minds on specific subjects, but sort of changing their political orientation or being somewhere along that journey. And everyone's story and reasons for leaving a political affiliation are different. Sometimes people radically change their mind and they just no longer fit with the party's values. Sometimes they feel more like the party left them, that they realize there was a disconnect between their own beliefs and those of the party. A lot of the people in the walk away movement, for instance, have said exactly that. And the truth is that the way most people change their minds change parties or even change like their general political orientation. That's a slow and sort of piecemeal process usually. And even though we generally focus here on the 180 cast on single issues where the guest has completely done a total flip, um, if our goal here is to explore how people change their minds, then I want to talk to those people who who have come down on some things and maybe other things are still up in the air. And Decision-making and beliefs, like I said, are complicated and messy, and it's just as interesting and helpful and constructive to talk to people who are still on a journey of sorts as it is to talk to people who've already arrived. My next guest is someone I had, I had to have on the podcast when I found out, after reading a lot of things from this person that I considered to be pretty conservative, that she had voted for Chuck Schumer. 
Also, she's just a very interesting person, and I always love reading her stuff. She is a writer for the Post Millennial and a senior contributor at The Federalist, where I also am a senior contributor. She's written for Arc Digital. American Conservative. Yeah. All sorts of things. And she's... And you're also a playwright, which is like no big deal, right? Yeah, I'm a playwright. No big deal. No big deal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Libby Emmons, thank you for joining me today on the 180 cast. Thank you so much for having me. I really uh, appreciate it. Before we get started, don't forget that you can subscribe to the podcast to stay updated. We release a new episode every Friday with bi-weekly breakdowns where I talk about the news, the issues of our day. Um, debunk a little conventional wisdom and just generally seek to bring some moral and logical clarity to the situation we find ourselves in in this political and cultural milieu. So if you're looking for something like that, then you will fit right in here at the 180 cast. Also keep in mind, of course, if you have thoughts on this podcast, you can text or leave a voicemail on the flip phone at 323-999-1802. And that number, of course, is going to be listed in the episode description. So don't feel like you have to rummage around for the pen and paper that I know that you do not have because we live in 2020. Okay, let us begin. Libby, like I said, I heard that you voted for Chuck Schumer. Yes. And as far as I know, you're still technically a registered Democrat, or you were as of like a couple weeks ago, right? Yes, I still am. It's uh, in New York, you have to be registered with one party or another to vote in the primary. So if you're not registered Democratic or Republican, you cannot vote in either party's primary. Unlike California, where I think it's an open primary, right? Right. Um, Here in Washington, yeah, we kind of have jungle primaries. Yeah. So that's that's certainly part of it. Um, I'm in the one small part of Brooklyn that um, occasionally goes red and voted for Trump, I believe. Um, Although I did not. I voted for (laughs) Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I've been a registered Democrat since I could first vote. My first vote was for Bill Clinton back whenever that was. What was that? 94? Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, 94. I could vote in 94. That's right. That would have been my first. uh, Yeah, and I cast a vote in New York for Bill Clinton. I've only ever voted in New York, actually, despite some time in Philadelphia. I never changed my registration. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so what's your background? Why did you become a a Democrat in, in the first place? You know, what were your reasons sort of for voting for the Clintons? Well, I was 18. Maybe I was 19. But yeah, my mother is Democrat. My I grew up in um, southeastern Massachusetts very liberal stronghold. Then I lived in, I uh, grew up, I spent some time in Philadelphia where I finished high school. Also a very liberal stronghold. Uh, it never occurred to me to be anything else. It never occurred to me to look into the opposition, as it were. When I was a kid, my stepmom and dad used to argue politics all the time. He was in favor of Reagan and she was not. And it mostly had to do with what I can recall, um, social safety net programs which I'm, I'm in favor of social safety net programs. And so that is pretty much where and why I stayed with the more leftist side of things, because I think that there should be access for people who are, you know, falling through the cracks to get a boost if they can't get it from somewhere else, whether from family or community. So when you were a kid, what do you what do you sort of remember from those conversations about, you know, Reagan and social safety nets that you found that you found compelling or not compelling? Um, Mostly it had to do with an emotional reaction to 
not wanting anyone to get left left behind or left out, uh, wanting to help people, wanting to help poor people. That was the experience at my Catholic church. And it was very much about making sure that everybody had a chance, that there was always an opportunity for someone to get whatever it was, food or assistance or help finding work. It was all about that kind of um, that kind of thing. And, you know, it's interesting because now I look at it and I say the most effective programs like that are local programs, whether they're church-based or community-based programs or even local government programs. I think that on a local level, um, politicians and individuals have a much better chance of helping the people in their community than from a centralized federal level. Mm-hmm. And that is certainly a distinction that I wasn't aware of when I was a kid or when um, I was in college or university. Again, I went to very liberal schools. I went to Sarah Lawrence College for my undergrad, and then I went to Columbia University for my graduate degree. So it, it literally never occurred to me <laughs> to um, consider an alternative political idea. So it was like that much of a, when people talk about bubbles, are you saying that you were in one of those bubbles? Like I would call it a bubble, but it was certainly a trajectory with very specific kinds of um, education. Like for for example, I, um, I, I was, I'm very well read. I read everything, or at least, you know, that's sort of my perception of myself. Um, when I was an undergrad, I took a wide variety of courses from, you know, all humanities. So to me, it was a wide variety, but in retrospect, it's like, oh, there's so much that I didn't study at all that just like never even made it into my line of vision. And the same thing with graduate school, um, although I was studying theater and playwriting primarily. So, you know, the variety of theater history is like, are we studying Greek or, you know, what are we studying? <laughs> right. so, um, but yeah, I mean, Maybe it's a bull. It's certainly a. It's certainly very easy to find yourself on a track and not really veer off of it. Now I'm doing this fellowship with um, the National Review Institute, and the reading that comes up every week. It's an eight week thing, and um, the reading that comes up every week is stuff that I never have seen before. And I'm like, oh, this is a thing. I didn't know that that was a thing. You know, it's like. I'm reading Burke and I'm like, Oh, that was a guy. Okay. (laughs) Who knew? So it's kind of this, um, interesting, like crash course in, uh, an area of study that I, it never occurred to me to even look at before Western philosophy. Yeah. I know all of that, you know, political philosophy, nothing, just absolutely nothing. So it's, it's pretty interesting to do that. So considering your your trajectory and and considering the fact that you believe this the social safety net sounds like that was sort of your your litmus test how did you find yourself to being doing a fellowship with the National Review Institute <laughs> where well, along the line did things change right where did things change well i think mostly what happened had to do with the um leftist push toward group identity and group rights over individual rights. So for me personally, you know, I had marched against, I don't know, pick a thing. I marched against it. You know, I marched against um, 
the Iraq war in 2003. I marched for gay rights. I marched against um, unjust incarceration, all of these things. And to me, these protests were about the sovereignty of the individual, that an individual within, you know, certain considerations of society, etc., has the right to self-determination, to do as they think is is right according to their own moral precepts and values. So that was my basic idea, is that every person is a king unto themselves. And I still feel that way. But the push from the left has emphasized the rights of a group over the rights of the individual. And this is something that I really can't get with. And where I started to really notice that was, um, and you know, I've written on this extensively, where I started to really notice that was with the um, transgender movement and um, this idea of like trans ideology. And what happened with that was at a certain point, the idea was that for an individual to be themselves and to live as they chose, everybody else needed to change. And then so so that's two parts of it. And then the other side of that was the push from the left was, yes, everybody needs to change to accommodate the sovereignty of this one individual. And I'm over here saying, like, what about your sovereignty? What about mine? You know, what about? So you're kind of more of the old school boilerplate kind of liberal where you believe in, you know, civil liberties and uh, outdated, exactly. archaic, things like that. Out, yeah, super outdated. And then this idea that group has rights regardless of the individuals within that group, the push toward collectivism, which I'm really opposed to because there's no room in a collective for an opposing idea. And that's really dangerous. You know, once we start taking away individual rights in favor of what's best for everybody, that's where I think we run into trouble. So when did you start to realize these things? What were you experiencing? Like, for instance, was there a moment where you had an aha sort of light bulb go off and you were like, hmm, something doesn't feel right about this? Well, there's probably a connection to uh, David, who you know, David Marcus, who also writes for The Federalist, who I was married to for 20 years and who's a you know great friend of mine. He started to lean away from liberalism and from the the progressive left when the Democratic Party started shifting towards progressive. And we talked a lot about it. And there was an awful lot that we agreed on because they're, you know, if you're with someone for that long, it's probably because there's an awful lot you agree on. So uh, he really started to make that change. And he made it very publicly within our theater community, which was remarkably difficult for me because of this bubble you speak of and everybody we knew was educated very similarly to the way that I was educated. So there wasn't any room at all for consideration of an opposing view. And when Obama started his run for presidency, everyone that we knew was a hundred percent on board with that. And the the problem that um, we were noticing was that Obama would say different things to different people, different things to different groups. And then what you would have is people from those groups hearing when he said something in opposition to their perspective saying, oh, he just has to say that for them so that they'll vote for him. And it's like, well, but, but what's the truth then? What does he actually believe? 
And this is certainly a political maneuver that we have seen over and over again since then. It's almost brilliant with everybody paste onto you what they think your view is so that when you say something in opposition to that view, they assume that you're really actually still on their side. And that was, I don't know if you remember that. It was weird. It was like, but he just said this. Oh, he doesn't mean that. Okay. And I think I remember when he was campaigning in 08, he was supposedly for traditional marriage. And then once he got in office, then he said publicly you know, he framed it as a change of mind, but other people who knew him better were like, no, he's been for this the whole time. Right. So it's kind of like, well, just say what you think, man. Like, just say what you actually think. It's always better to be honest and direct than to have to walk back things you didn't mean later. Even if you don't win, it's always better to be honest and direct. That doesn't mean tell your wife she looks bad in her, <laughs> you know, her dress, but like, you know, don't tell her she looks good if she doesn't either. So, so so you were in, so you guys were in the theater community. David came mm-hmm, out. Mm-hmm. And David made the switch, yeah. And so that was that was really a sort of a weird thing. And it was unprecedented <laughs> in our community. And he was roundly ostracized after a while because people thought it was a performance art project. <laughs> wait, whoa, wait. Wait, for real? Or just like us? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, no, no, no. You have yeah. to tell me more about so, this. What do you mean by that? <laughs> so we were doing a theater show called Sticky, which we ran for a long time. It was a 10-minute play project. And we were in residence at um, the Bowery Poetry downtown, which is a, at the time, it was a spectacular venue. It's since sort of changed its mission. But so we were at Bowery Poetry Club, and he, he was like the MC of the show. So he started saying things like George Bush really wasn't that bad. And um, he started saying like good things about John McCain. He was saying good things about Obama's opposition. And people were like, what are you talking about? He started saying things like against the not-for-profit theater movement. And people were like, "Um, isn't that where you guys get your money? And we're like, nope, we're unsubsidized. We are not taking any government funds at all. Our budget was based entirely on ticket sales, which is still something I'm pretty proud of. So people were like, is he just putting this on? Is this just a performance art project? Is he just going to come out one day and say, like, hi, I spoofed you? And I was like, no, you guys, it's real. Oh, you mean like Stephen Colbert? Right. That's what they thought. Ah. Um, good friends would be like, he's joking, right? And I'd be like, no, you guys. And it was really hard at home because I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you trying to destroy our life? by doing this. Um, and we talked about it and they, there was still a lot that we agreed on, you know? Um, and, you know, it's funny because I take all of those like online Cosmo quizzes to tell you what your political affiliation is. Mm-hmm. And I keep ending up on the like leftist libertarian area. And I think that's because it's sort of like a much more classical perspective based on individual Liberty, which now that I'm studying a little more about conservatism, I'm seeing that like, and you know, I'm new, I'm like two weeks in, I'm studying this stuff. So it has a lot more to do with maintaining order. Right. Uh, So that's kind of interesting too, you know, because like, what does it, what does the collective tell you about why they would suppress individual rights in favor of group rights? Well, it's to, you know, maintain 
order to a certain extent. It's to like enforce an, a, an agenda. Yeah. And enforce a perspective. Yeah. That's like less about ideology and more about like just keeping things moving along in a sane way where no one's getting guillotined. So that's interesting. And then for me personally, it had a lot more like my change of heart had a lot more to do with suddenly realizing that I was supposed to add cis in front of my identifier, that I was supposed to have identifiers. Another thing that happened was, I think it was like 2016-ish, there started to be all of these articles about like how white people need to do better and like white women have to do better about this and like this is how you have to be an ally and this is how you have to behave. So it was, if you uphold this certain, you know, progressive ideology, then these are the ways you now have to behave in your life. And I was like, this is just craziness, you know, like believing something doesn't mean I have to behave a certain way that I am told that fits with the identifier that I have now been assigned, you know? And so, so was like, it within this, was it within the theater community where that you were being told you had to, to add the, yes. the gender modifier? Yes. Like I would go to, I went to a meeting at a women's theater collective where like the first 15 minutes or something was all of us having to go around and say our pronouns. And I was just like, Oh my God, I'm going to throw up. Like we're already at a meeting. Isn't that bad enough? Now we have to waste time. We're all, we're all women. We're just all women sitting here. Like, who are we performing for? What is this about? Like, are we just trying to like, uh, you know, put our thought process in a certain way so that we always think this first and if so, like, why? I do not want to waste my time modifying my identity because I am told that I must. It's just so stupid. I mean, it's just so stupid. And then the other thing, too, and, it, you know, it does come back to trans and what, like, trans has done to the movement for women's rights and women's issues, which I think it's really been um, damaging to women's rights and women's issues, certainly in conversation, if not in practice, although it has been in practice as well, with like sports and whatever else. So with regard to that, you have this thing suddenly where like to be a woman means all of these things that don't really have anything to do with being a woman. So being a woman means, you know, wearing dresses or like wearing makeup or being submissive or being demure um, not speaking up when the men are talking, you know, wearing high heels, doing your hair a certain way, you know, pillow fights and lingerie slumber parties and showering together and having secret giggles about boys. Like suddenly, you know, woman doesn't mean, as Posey Parker <laughs> puts it, you know, adult human female. Suddenly woman means all of these associated feelings that have been perceived to be womanhood by mostly Hollywood movies and centuries of men claiming that women are mysterious. Um, mm. What the hell? Like, what, how did we land on women are mystical after, you know, a generation or so, at least of a couple of generations of women saying, dudes, like, we're really just people and we're the ones that have the babies and there are things that are different about us, but you could just as easily say there are things that are different about you like here we are we're we're really just people please stop marginalizing us just because our bodies are the ones that carry the children so the transgender thing sort of emerged as the biggest issue for you it did because it changed the conversation around women's rights 
it reinforced gender stereotyping and it demanded that the individual redefine themselves according to the whims of this group, none of which I thought was okay. So that's when I started. Um, the first piece I wrote for The Federalist, I actually wrote with David about how trans is the reinforcing of gender stereotypes. And I think that was in 2015, I think in June 2015. And I was writing plays. I was writing these quirky little plays. One of them was called I Am Not an Allegory, which was about a group of loosely interconnected friends-ish and acquaintances, uh, the 10 characters in the play mostly like in Brooklyn and there's like a dance class and there's monologues about, am I a bad feminist if I just want to stay home and have babies and fall in love monologues about watching law and order conversations about Charlie Mingus, you know, great jazz musician. And that was uh, experimental and disjointed and really a lot of fun, you know, writing little plays for sticky about going on vacation with my friend Allie. I had like a whole series of these like funny little vacation plays and, you know, a lot of other stuff. So I was doing all of that. And then I was, I was in Italy with my mom. We went to the Venice Biennale, which is like this art exhibit that they do every couple of years. And it's so cool. There's like all this art from all over the world. And we had seen an exhibit that had been curated, I believe by a group called Rhizoma that was out of Saudi Arabia. And there were a lot of Middle Eastern artists in the exhibit. And there were some really funny videos by a woman called Sarah Abu Abdullah, where she's in her home and she's wearing, like, I think it's called a shador and she's also wearing a niqab. Um, so you can't see her face. Maybe you could just see her eyes. I don't remember. But she has this giant cooking pot, like really huge cooking pot. And I think you could find this on YouTube. She uh, stands in the corner of the room and puts the cooking pot on her head until she crouches all the way down on the floor and she's just inside this cooking pot. And there she is just in this cooking pot in her house. She does it in the laundry room. And it just like I watched it for a while and I just remember like dying laughing with this idea that you're just invisible in your own house. And what this says about, you know, her probably her personal experience, which she must have found amusing in order to make this hilarious video. And what it says about, you know, women internationally and how women do so often do this invisible work and nobody notices. But so Sarah Abu Abdullah is very funny. I loved it. My mom and I were just like really blown away by this work. Then a couple months later, I found out that one of the curators of this exhibit, this guy Ashraf Fayad, who's a poet and a curator, and who's Palestinian, lives in Saudi Arabia, but is basically stateless, had been imprisoned by the Saudi Arabian government for apostasy, which is like really serious heresy. And I was like, oh my goodness, like this guy is kind of an artistic genius. There's no reason he should be locked up and unable to continue to work with this cool collective that I definitely want to see more work from. So I thought like, how could I bring this to the attention of people who might be able to do something about it. And that's when I started writing for the federal. So I was like, hey, can I write about how this guy should not be in jail? So I wrote that and he's still in jail because Saudi Arabia doesn't really care. Um, but yeah, that's how I ended up there. And then as the progressive movement really took over the Democratic Party, really reducing individual rights to um, fashion, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just I just have a lot of trouble sticking with that anymore. 
but I don't necessarily feel at home in the conservative movement either. You are among the, uh, sounds like you're among the, the political homeless, which is an increasingly large group. We should start an encampment. Increasing, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, maybe we need the third, the third, the third community. Where did, where did that, um, ultimately end up? Cause I, I remember like a few years ago reading something you wrote in Colette about your experience in theater and trans. Um, it didn't go that well. I wrote on uh, transhumanism in, for Quillette about undercurrent transhumanism in Western culture. And transhumanism is about the intentional, it's a philosophy basically saying that the uh, human beings should intentionally evolve with the use of technology in order to further life extension. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think transgender is certainly part of that because it diminishes the connection between mind and body, which is needed for transhumanism to truly succeed. It uh, There's also biohacking where you can uh, install tech in your body. Um, and the difference between something like biohacking and something like a heart transplant or putting in um, a mechanical hip is that both with transgender and with body hacking, what you're doing is modifying a healthy body. And I think that's a, that's a big difference that um, transhumanists don't want to talk about. The modification of a healthy body is a very different thing than attempts to repair a broken body. And I think they should be considered differently as well. And I don't think they are considered that differently. And that's what ties the transhumanists transhumanism and transgenderism together sort of philosophically is they are modifications on healthy bodies. Yeah, exactly. That's the big difference. So I wrote that and that was published in Quillette. I told the women that I was working with in my feminist theater collective that I was writing this and uh, they didn't have a problem with it. I told them it was being, or maybe I just told them that it was being published. I don't know if they read it. But in the theater community, eventually, word got out that I had written this and that I must think terrible things about transgender people, which, of course, I don't Mm -hmm. think badly about anyone. I just don't think it's a movement that is beneficial to humanity. And that's where the problem lies for me. It's not with individuals who are adults making choices that I would not make for myself, because there's lots of adults that make choices I would not make for myself, from minor ones to major ones. So in the theater community, this turned into an issue. The women I was working with suggested that I apologize to try and walk it back. It was perceived as my having a problem with transgender persons. I don't have a problem with transgender persons or adults who make choices that I would not make. Opposed to the transitioning of minors, for sure. But grown-ups need to make their own decisions. So the women that I, um, it came out in the theater community that I had written this, that I should educate myself as to these issues on uh, critical gender theory so that I could better understand it. That wasn't really necessary. I was pretty well educated in critical gender theory, so I didn't need to mm-hmm. go back to that. And then the um, blowback was hard enough that the women I was working with said that I should apologize and walk back the, um, walk back the article which I, I just couldn't do that. I believed in what I had said. And right. yeah, I mean, I can't, it's not something I can do. If at some point I change my mind about it, then maybe I would be one of those people that disavows all their early work. But I tend to think things through as much as I can and come to a conclusion before saying anything. So I don't know why I would ever get to that point. 
Um, so I did not apologize. I was disinvited from other pro- my theater group closed and it closed because of this. I um, was disinvited from other projects I was working on. And then I have a normal job. I lost that job having completely nothing to do with this, structured out of it. And after that, I was just like, okay, I'm just going to write all the time now. In things I had wanted to write that I hadn't written, I did not want to make life difficult for my collaborators in theater. So yeah, mm-hmm. now I just write it. Now I just write whatever I want. Yeah, you're a very prolific writer. So when did you sort of like, hop on to the like the post-millennial and the Federalists, mostly writing about trans stuff. But how did you end up in that position where you really are like a go-to writer for so many people who are definitely on the right who read your read your work? So how did you sort of end up it being oriented that way? And how do you feel about that? You know, it's kind of funny because I don't feel like my views changed very significantly. I do feel like the landscape has changed drastically. So progressive ideology at this point is a group identity-based ideology. It's more about making sure that the group is identified properly than that the individual has the right to do as they please. And you can see that when people who are part of specific identity groups break out from the fold or people who have been assumed to who have been assigned in identity groups. Like that's part of it too, is identity is this weird thing where if you are an individual, you subscribe to an, uh, to an identity factor. And then the rest of the group who has already claimed that identity factor kind of decides if you can be included in group identity or not. But if a group, group assigns you an identity factor and you disavow the ideological tenets that the group as as part of that identity factor, then you're kind of kicked out. You can see that with um, trans persons who refuse to give up the idea that there's actual biological sex. They're like called all these names. You can see that if there's like, you know, people who are from a minority group who then don't necessarily subscribe to progressive ideals, they're kind of kicked out. So it's more about, um, yeah, like this group identity. So I don't feel like I have changed significantly, although certainly there have been some changes, but they mostly center around this fundamental idea of individual sovereignty for me. And I can't, I can't really go back on that. Yeah. Do you feel like there are like a lot of other people in the Democrat party who are sort of where you're at? A lot of people who don't want to say anything. They don't want to rock the boats that they're in. They don't want to disrupt their friend groups. I've heard from people who um, will say like, oh, I agree with you, but I would never say that out loud. And this is like people who are about Nazis now, right? And like, oh, let's punch a Nazi and stuff. More people, like the Nazis were successful in as much as they were successful because people didn't want to say anything. That's all it takes is for people to keep their heads down and go along to get along. Like that's, that's the problem. People not standing up for themselves or for other people, you know, like that's what it takes. So, yeah, I mean, I ended up in this weird space where I'm writing for all of these conservative outlets, you know, post-millennial I write for all the time, primarily because I'm not prohibited from what I can say. Like you write for the Federalist, the amount, like you're not edited for perspective. You're not edited to make sure that your take is the right take. <laughs> right. So in terms of the, the go along, 
the the keeping your head down and go along to get along that you talked about earlier with regard to sort of old school liberals in the Democrat Party, do you think that that's something that would help is just sort of taking ownership of the things that you consume? And then maybe that that might make a difference in you being willing to speak up or not? Yeah. And I think it would make a difference in being willing to have open conversations and not just assume that everyone agrees with you is, you know, monster and assume that everyone who agrees with you is going to freak out if you disagree with them, you know, like, right. Be aware. They need to consume things in a considered way. And we've gotten lazy as a society. People don't want to form their own values. And we've taken away large way, we've taken away so many of the, well, the one major thing that used to help people form values, which is a religious foundation. We don't really subscribe to that anymore, that a religious foundation is a worthwhile underpinning either to culture or to individual reality. We've masked our um, once was a religious-based morality with all of these secular ideas that are so easily removed from their religious underpinnings as to become just meaningless ephemera. So, you know, that's how we land with so many, so many of these terrible ideas. That's that's another thing is I'm Catholic. Um, I I grew up Catholic. And when we got married, our families were all pretty opposed to our wedding being Catholic. They thought it was absurd. And we were just like, well, without without Christianity, how are we going to understand Western civilization, how are we going to understand and how are we going to instill some sort of moral values into our family structure? Right. Do you think it's kind of a a lack of foundation then as well that sort of makes people not willing to stand up within their own party when they see that the the platform has become so radical? Because this is sort of a head scratcher for me is there are a lot of non-radical Dems. For instance, people throw this around all the time about third trimester abortion. Oh, there's, there's hardly any Democrats that believe in third trimester abortion. Well, then why is it in your party platform? Why aren't there any restrictions in your party platform? I find that disturbing too. And, you know, that's sort of... Right, but there's... They're registered mm-hmm. Democrats. Like, oh, there's such a, it seems like there's such a disconnect. And I'm just trying to understand you being a Democrat <laughs> and being sort of right. an old school liberal. Why, why stay in that party when you have dif- disagreements, of course, not just on abortion, but on a variety of issues, you know, like gender mm-hmm. theory? Uh, I want to be able to vote in the primary. <laughs> but, uh, I, live, I live in Brooklyn. Right. That's, you th- know, that's true. Parents. There's no real reason to vote in the Republican primary. Right. Not this time around anyway. Yeah. I mean, even in local, like local elections, the only way to really steer anything that's going on in New York is to vote in the Democratic elections. That's just sort of what there is. You know, I voted against de Blasio. He ended up winning anyway. That's where the candidates are. So that's where you have to vote for them. Yeah, there's a lot that I am opposed to. There's like like third trimester abortions. Good gravy, what a nightmare. What a nightmare. Um, gender ideology, I'm so opposed to that. So what is your elevator pitch for someone who might consider herself to be sort of an old school liberal like yourself, but is still actually not just in the Democrat Party, which like you said, can be for practical reasons, um, but who is still voting for very far left candidates like Obama was a pretty far left candidate 
Hillary Clinton was a pretty far-left candidate. Uh, Bernie Sanders is definitely a far-left candidate. And it, it does seem like there are there are people that sort of track along those lines, but they're, they're very willing to vote for people who don't um, necessarily share their core beliefs. There's a thing now where it's anybody, you know, vote for whoever. Like people are saying on my media feeds that Democrats need to vote for whoever the nominee is. The nominee is just vote for them. I think that's such a, you know, I think that's such a dangerous perspective. And I think that is, you know, throwing away your vote for whoever your party throws at you. If you have things you believe in, work in your local community to try and actualize them here, get to know your neighbors, get to know the people around you and hold your candidate's feet to the fire. If there's something you don't like that's part of the party platform, let them know. This is a reason I would not vote for you again. These are things that matter to me and you're screwing it up. Um, even, even to the point where some of these things that are on party platforms are not federal issues and they should be federal issues. And that's part of it too. Like why is a gig law a federal issue? Like back the hell off. This is certainly not a, a matter for the House of Representatives to take off, take up whether or not I can work on my own schedule, set my own hours and, you know, raise my kid at the same time. Like, why is that my federal representative's business? Right. And I think that's part of it too. I think that candidates take on too much as part of their platform instead of leaving it to um, their constituents' localities. Right. The I'm part of a group here in New York that's fighting against these freelancer laws and we were fighting against our assemblymen and first or assembly persons, whatever, and senators. And the next thing you know, it's, on the, it's like talking about how this should be federal policy. And we're all like, what the hell? We were sitting here going to Albany trying to talk about this in a reasonable way. And now you're pitching it to Wisconsin. What are you like? What are you doing? Right. So, yeah, I think a lot of that stuff should not even be federal. And we should talk about that. Democrats are uh, in the in the heavily blue areas are pretty used to just as my old politics teacher Pat Rushnetter used to say pulling the pulling the lever like at the top um, people aren't you know maybe people aren't thinking about it as much as they should that that time is over you know that can be because the differences are too stark now than they were the differences are much starker. So you're saying that you're saying that 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 time where you could sort of just pull the lever for whoever because that person is sort of going to be at least toward the center of the party. You can't um, mm -hmm. you can't just go operate off that assumption anymore because people have pulled candidates have pulled so far to one end or the other. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. So where do you see, where do you yourself see your trajectory from here? So you're, you're reading Ed, Edmund Burke, you're, you're doing this fellowship. Do you think that you're going to change more of your uh, opinions in the future? I'm hoping that I can be better educated than I am and have more information, more background, more understanding, and to be able to visualize things a little clearer, the trajectory um, that we've come from. In terms of personally, I want <laughs> writing, I want to tell good stories. I want readers to be interested in what I have to say. And uh, trying to figure out the next step has been on my mind a lot. And I don't know that I've quite figured that out. 
I'm sure I haven't, in fact. I admire the fact that you admit that because a lot of people run around acting like they do have it all figured out. <laughs> oh, yeah, I definitely don't. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. It's been a really fascinating conversation. You can follow Libby on Twitter at L-I-8-8-Y-I-N-C and find her work at The Postmillennial and The Federalist. She is always worth reading, in my humble opinion, whether you consider yourself to be on the right or on the left or somewhere in the middle. If you have thoughts, of course, especially if you're outraged or you have glowing praise, that is my favorite. No, I'm, I'm kidding. It's not my favorite, but I do love it. Call or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802. Flip out. You can try to flip my position or tell me about your own flip-flop or 180 story, 323-999-1802. That number is in the episode description. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast. I do sporadically uh, post um, sound bites both before and after these episodes. So if you're you're interested in sort of getting a glimpse of future episodes and past episodes, do follow that. And if you have a moment, please consider giving the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts because it is very, very helpful to me in getting this podcast in front of more ears so we can have more interesting conversations as a community. You can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman, where I opine on a variety of topics from a Christian conservative worldview. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless.